Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Richard Steele, author of Elevated Economics. Richard, welcome. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. As I told you before, your book is terrific. It's one of those books that you can't put down. Uh, So it's really, really well done. Of course, I love books with lots of information in it. So that's probably what I like the most uh, about it. Uh, So please tell us about your professional background and what you're doing right now. Oh, thanks, Mark. I appreciate the kind words. Um, So currently, I'm the CEO of a company called Parsec Ventures. And in my past, I've run both private companies and public companies. Uh, I've been an advisor to the White House Business Council, um, advised the Biden team on economic policy and on uh, on innovation policy. Uh, I was named one of Inc. Magazine's fastest growing company CEOs. Uh, member and former chair of YPO, which is a young president's organization, and uh, alumnus of Harvard Business School, where I currently serve on the Harvard Business School alumni board, uh, among many other board positions. And uh, I wrote Elevated Economics, spent about two years researching and writing that book. And uh, uh, I'm actually very proud to say it recently won book of the year uh, in economics. Oh, well, congratulations. That's great. And clearly all the other things you told us, you know what, you have a lot of extra time on your hands. So I'm expecting more production from you in the future. That's for sure. Why did you write this book? Yeah, so, um, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with business leaders and and folks in government about how business and society are changing and what leadership will look like uh, in the near future. We're always trying to, you know, see around the next around the next curve. And, you know, recently, as we all know, things have been accelerating at a very fast pace. So I decided to to really delve into the events that are that are shaping these changes and kind of what the what the natural progression is, where we're going to go, sort of how what they call you know uh, discovering the inevitable and uncovering the inevitable. And you know, this past summer, uh, I was on a rafting trip where the 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 Colorado River and the Roaring Fork River meet, and and the 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 point at which two rivers meet is called a confluence. But the term confluence is only used when the rivers that meet are of similar size. Otherwise, if it's a smaller river, they're called a tributary. Um, And in the same way, we've been seeing a lot of similarly sized events happening in our country and abroad. And we see them affecting the business community in in really, really profound ways, right? Um, And those events that have contributed to that change are things like racial injustice and climate change and diversity and inclusion issues and new regulations. Change in investing habits and consumption habits of the next generation and all that with a backdrop of accessibility and ubiquity of information. And I think that you know people's concerns haven't been getting addressed by government. And when the public sector fails, the responsibility of leadership falls to the private sector largely. And change is is really being driven like never before, I think, at the consumer level and at the investor level. And firms are forced to answer the call. So that's why I wrote this book, to delve into those issues. I think that's because people are getting information faster and from more sources now than in any time in history. 
And so things that took a while for us to, to get to us uh, or things that we just relied on in a couple places now, there's just ubiquitous information, whether it's true or not true, that's another question, but there's tons of stuff that's out there. But what is your definition of an elevated economy? Yeah, so one were the negative externalities that companies have been foisting on the rest of the world in pursuit of an extra buck are no longer tolerated uh, and no longer even attempted, really. One where impact is measured and we engage in impact-weighted accounting on the, on the firm side, where, you know, uh, one where capitalism thrives, but it really considers all stakeholders, not just shareholders. And, and I'll make it a, a, an observation here. When Harvard Business School was created, the dean at that time was a guy named Edwin Gay. And he said, the purpose of business is to make a decent profit decently. And, and, and I think that's what sensible investors will demand of the firms that they back. Uh, Bill Salmon, who's a professor at HBS, said, said the, the same thing. And it's that word decently to write to make it to make a de- decent profit decently, and it seems as though somehow we've gotten away from that over time. There's a whole variety of reasons for that, but um, I think that an elevated economy kind of goes back to that definition of making a decent profit decently. Yeah, there was a time when company CEOs felt a real obligation to do the right thing for society, and I think uh, because of people wanting returns so quickly that's changed some of the equation. You provide this great metaphor regarding what happened with Chernobyl, and you say the global economy is soon to cross the red line. Can you uh, explain this uh, metaphor you used and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So it's in, the, it's in chapter one. I think it's on the first page um, of, the, of the book. And it's this idea that, you know, we think about Chernobyl and we think about this, you know, spectacular explosion, this one singular event. And I, of course, that's, that's true. That did happen. But I think the real story is what led up to that event, right? So years and years and years of mistakes, ego, pressure, both literally and figuratively. Um, and this idea of slow leaks, right? These leaks that were tolerated, these problems that were, that were overlooked, swept under the rug, that, that folks hoped would go away, right? Until of course the unavoidable was upon them, right? And then of course uh, uh, the, the rest of the world uh, uh, had to deal with it as well. So I think that it's, it's sort of that boiling frog metaphor as well. If you turn, you know, if the frog's in a pot of boiling water and, and it starts off cold and you raise it one, one degree at a time, the frog never realizes sort of until it's too late. And that's what's happened that's what happened with Chernobyl, and that's what's happened with, I think, the global economy uh, in relation to those things that I mentioned before, climate change specifically, um, racial injustice, diversity, inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, that that is sort of where we are as a society and sort of how we got there as well. And so this is a real point of reckoning that we're in right now today. Why don't you think people get client cha- uh, climate change? Because it, it, it- it makes me think about like if I were explaining it uh, to uh, especially the last president who wasn't a, a believer in the climate change, that's like him being in the Oval Office with just he and I speaking and it's nice and cool and comfortable. But if we put 200 people in the Oval Office together, then it becomes heated up and uncomfortable. So why do you think people really don't get it 
about climate change? Sure. You know, when something's really, in, you know, in front of your face, right, you, you, you know, if your house is on fire, you understand that, right? You act quickly. Um, but if things are incremental, like that boiling frog metaphor we just used with Chernobyl, when things are incremental, people aren't forced to act in that moment. Um, it's also easier to do nothing than it is to do something. Um, but that's all changing, right? And we're seeing whether it's um, regulatory pressure, consumer pressure, um, companies uh, behaving the right way, um, it, it's changing. And I think we're, we, we've got to a point now where everybody understands, well, almost everybody understands that, uh, that we, need to make these, uh, we need to make these changes. So maybe in schools, they need to start teaching people younger about this because it is impacting business and not, not just society in general and what kind of businesses these folks will go into, what kind of skill sets they're going to need, all those types of things. So you th think this should start being taught at a very young age? Well, it, it's interesting, Mark. So I think that 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 when we're talking about climate change uh, and 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 people doing nothing and sort of uh, uh, the the immediacy of it, I think we're talking about people of maybe your my generation um, <laughs> because it's completely completely different um, with younger generations. I, I was actually at a, a, a business school reunion. And there, there are multiple graduation years that, that, that attend the reunion. So you'll have um, men and women in their, in their you know, 60s and, and, and 70s come to a reunion with, uh, with the younger folks. And we were in a, uh, a session taught by Vikram Gandhi, a great uh, professor there. Um, and one of, the, one of the gentlemen that was in the class brought his daughter. And the, the, the sort of case discussion that we were having was about climate change and what companies should do and sort of if they should act and all the rest of it. And I was really hoping that this young woman, the, the, the daughter, she's probably maybe 20 or so of, 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 of one of the guys that was there would speak. And finally she did. And she said, listen, you guys are debating if, like, that's not the question, right? Like the question is how, like, how do we do this now? Not if we should. So it was just this great moment where the younger generation was literally speaking to the older generation really underscoring the fact that this is just not how they think, not how they behave, not how they invest. And, and we were just a bunch of dinosaurs, right? You know, talking and, and, and arguing amongst ourselves about a topic that had already been decided by the next generation. Um, what, are, what are, from your research, are consumers most dissatisfied with today? And please tell about the signals of change. You write about that in the book. Yeah, sure. So, um, Let's go to your first question first. I think when you talk about the, the dissatisfaction, there was a, a really great um, Nielsen study that asked the question, um, uh, they asked the question, you know, state, state your, your level of agreement with, with this statement. It is extremely or very important to me that companies uh, implement programs to support the environment, right? Uh, baby boomers, about 62% of them agreed with that statement. Gen X was 66%. Millennials, 83%. So just right there, you have a, a great study by one of the best research institutions. And by the way, the list, the, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, so, so I would say dissatisfaction. Climate change is usually the top of the list. There are lots of others, but climate change is, is usually um, top of the list. And then we talk about signals of change. I would say just, again, I'm really a data-driven person. So when you look at actual actions, things that have actually happened, 
you know, the consequences if companies don't change. You look at employee activism, right? Um, in response to climate inaction by their firms, uh, Amazon Employees for Climate Justice was formed and they staged a walkout. They walked out of the Amazon uh, headquarters. Um, and when they walked out um, uh, of the Seattle headquarters of Amazon, they were joined by employees from Google, from Microsoft, from Apple, from Facebook. And guess what? A few months later, Amazon pledged $2 billion to the climate crisis, right? You had Wayfair employers refusing to work because they didn't want their company to um, sell mattresses to the government who was planning on using them at their detention facility at the border, the whole kids in cages thing. You've had Google employees refusing to work on projects for the military. So that's, that's, you know, that's one set of facts on, on the employee activism side. But you also have consumers voting with their dollars and, and shunning brands that don't align with their values. So Unilever just spent a billion euro attempting to align its products with its customers' values. And, and they're spending that money on ways to cut fossil fuels from their detergents, right? And the, and the list goes on and on and on. But just to give you some examples, real world implications, set of facts, there you have them right there. You write about corporate and investor focus on ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Is that getting widespread or just niche appeal? And how is that affecting consumer buying habits? Sure. So um, in 20, another set of facts, in 2019, there were 500 ESG funds that, that, that folks could buy. 2020, that number was 2,700 funds. Um, and the number's gone up from there. Um, if, you, if you look at the uh, younger generation, these things are table stakes, ESG. So let's talk about ESG for a second. So um, uh, environmental, social, and governance uh, uh, practices. So environmental, that's kind of the easy one to understand, right? Air emissions and air quality, energy use, conservation, waste management, water quality, things like that. What, what do companies do to protect the natural environment? On the social side, that's relationships with employees, suppliers, clients, communities. So examples are you know, local community impact and labor standards, employee relations, um, production quality, safety, safety issues around production, equal employment opportunities, right? So that's on the social side. And governance really is how does a company behave? What are their standards for leadership within the company? What are their risk controls, shareholder rights, ethical business practices, um, voting rights, um, executive pay versus employee pay, things like that. So when we're talking about ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. Those are the things that we are talking about. And it is getting uh, a broad-based appeal um, uh, as evidenced by a whole set of numbers, some of which I, I mentioned at the top. But just, I'll, I'll stop there, but I, I, I could go on. Long answer to a short question. No, no, no. And I thought it was a good uh, answer. And it needs to be a thorough answer for people to really grasp the significance of this. Because especially as we've seen that uh, the guy in Brazil has been chopping down some of the rainforest and what effect that's going to have. And we're seeing floods all over, even in Philadelphia, uh, we had a flood that shut down a main artery that nobody had ever seen ever, ever. And was 15 feet high of water in a main artery that nobody could believe. And we're seeing more of this on a continuous basis, more frequently, you know, 105 year, 500 year floods are now happening regularly, uh, which is unbelievable. Uh, socially responsible investing has been around a long time, but usually reserved for tree huggers. Is this becoming more mainstream and how much attention do CEOs and boards have to pay to this? 
Sure. And so, Mark, for your for your listeners, not viewers, I'm sitting here smiling as you say tree hugger because I, I go through a, a whole set of research and, and I have a slide in my deck of a of a, a woman with her you know, arms around a tree, eyes closed, very sort of meditative pose. And we talk, we talk about um, the 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 implied trade off uh, between investing in ESG focused uh, funds or individual companies and um, the research shows that there absolutely is no trade-off. So, and, and in fact, some of those companies do better in the long run. So, and let me just quote some stats quickly. Morgan Stanley um, asks, can you invest sustainably without sacrificing financial returns? Research conducted on the performance of nearly 11,000 mutual funds uh, from to, uh, to, to 2004 to 2018 show that there's no financial trade-off in the returns of sustainable funds compared to traditional funds and that they demonstrate lower downside risk. Barron's, same thing. Sustainable companies return more to shareholders. So share, shares of the, of the Barron's 100 most sustainable companies returned 34.3% on average last year. The S&P returned 31%. 0.5%, right? So that's that. Morningstar, same thing. Sustainable funds and indexes perform on par with comparable conventional funds and indices, despite theories suggesting otherwise. So there is this myth that there is some trade-off. Um, but let's get back to your question. And, and, and when we talk about socially responsible investing um, or ESG, and you know, sort of is it becoming mainstream? And, and I think you asked how much attention CEOs and, and boards are paying to this. Well, so on 8-19-19, which is what I call in, in my book, I have a chapter, a whole chapter on this, called The Day the Shareholders Died. A little bit tongue in cheek, but here's why we talk about that. Shareholder value is no longer everything, top CEOs say. So that was the headline. Headline in the New York Times, shareholder value is no longer everything, top CEOs say. So I read that and I thought, my gosh, right? Like, you know, who are these like left-wing nut job CEOs that say shareholder value is no longer everything, right? What about Milton Friedman and his whole theory of, of shareholder primacy, which states that, that the purpose of a, of a, of a corporation is to uh, return uh, uh, value to shareholders uh, and really at all cost is sort of the subtext there. So I'm thinking, who are these leaders that say this? So I delved a little bit deeper into this and it turns out that it's Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Mary Barra of General Motors and Larry Fink of BlackRock and Julie Sweet from Accenture and Brian Moynihan from Bank of America and Tim Cook from Apple, of course, and Robert Smith of Vista Equity Partners and 133 other CEOs of America's biggest companies that agreed with this statement that shareholder value is no longer the top priority of business, right? I mean, huge. Doug McMillan, he's the CEO of Walmart, right? He's part of this group as well. And the group is the Business Roundtable. So this is the Business Roundtable, 140 CEOs of America's biggest companies. Um, and I, again, I mentioned a few of them already, but we're talking, you know, Jamie Dimon as well, of JP Morgan and Beth Ford from Land O'Lakes and Johnson, uh, Johnson CEOs, Marriott Accenture, Boston Consulting Group, the list goes on and on and on. And so they have put out this statement so to your question, right? They put out the statement saying, here, here, here's the new purpose of a corporation. And there were, there were five things. And in order, by the way, in order, here are the five things. Number one, delivering value to customers, okay? Number two, investing in our employees. And that's talk about you know, training and education and things like that, okay? Number three, dealing fairly and ethically with our suppliers. That was bullet point number three in the statement of the purpose of, of, of what a corporation is and does. 
Number four, supporting the communities in which we work. And the very last one, the fifth one, the last one, generating long-term value for shareholders, not short-term value, long-term value for shareholders. So this is an organization that, that the Business Roundtable that overturned its 22-year-old policy statement that defined a corporation's principal purpose as maximizing returns to shareholders. And they replaced it with this stakeholder-centric purpose. These stakeholders, right? Customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders, right? Um, so you know, here's what, what, what the CEOs of literally the largest companies in America had to say is new purpose of big business. So that's a big deal, right? So, so when you say that, you know, is this becoming mainstream and how much attention do CEOs and boards have, have to, to pay to, to these ideas around socially responsible investing, it's here to stay. It's absolutely mainstream. Um, and yes, everybody needs to sit up and pay a lot of attention. And if you're in a leadership position in your business or aspire to be in a leadership position in your business, you can really help your company, your firm, by understanding these principles of uh, ESG and purpose-driven businesses. And, and to use the Wayne Gretzky quote, get your firm to skate to where the puck is going, you know, that future state rather than where it is right now. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I have a tendency to go on, so I'll stop there. No, no, but it was a, a good answer. And it made me think uh, myself, as I'm sure other people are listening to this, think that they have to do that, you know, because of the internet and people having more choices now than ever on products, on job opportunities. If they don't align, then I can just go and work for somebody in Los Angeles, even though I live in Philadelphia or I live in Sweden. Uh, the smartest people aren't locked in to wherever they are physically, regionally, they can go anywhere for this stuff. And the more, and, and for the companies themselves, the bigger the disaster bills are, the higher insurance that they're paying, the more the costs are. So it's gotta be aligned with uh, the success for shareholders anyway, right? I believe so. And whether or not it's, it's the right thing to do, the you know consumers and investors and governments are will push firms to get there. So a uh, couple of headlines uh, from CNBC. It says uh, move over Fang, right? Um, which is an acronym for some of the big tech companies. It says move over Fang. The next decade of investing will be defined by ESG. So says Morgan Stanley. Um, Barron's had an article uh, with the headline that said sustainable fund assets at 1.2 trillion as ESG continues to gain market share. Um, sustainable investing in ESG is something that everybody should be considering because you can have an impact as well as return. This, this was the, uh, uh, um, uh, the head of BNP, BNP Paribas Asset Management. BlackRock's Larry Fink says investors are shifting to ESG focused firms in droves, right? And, and, and they're really leading the charge on that. You know, social bonds are serving. Endowments of huge institutions um, uh, and pension funds are um, uh, limiting their investments in companies and, and firms that are engaged in uh, extraction, right? Think oil and gas, mining companies, things like that. You've got Walmart. We talked about Doug McMillan a second ago. Walmart set a goal uh, almost a year ago today uh, to become a regenerative company. So, so that means that, that, that they will restore, renew, and replenish 
the natural environment, not just conserve or get to get to zero emissions, which they also announced. And then you've got governments as well, um, and banks, by the way, let's talk about banks for a second. HSBC and a whole bunch of other banks have set um, uh, 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 zero net finance emissions target, meaning they won't finance or they won't lend money to firms that uh, uh, impact greenhouse gas emissions. So think drilling in the Arctic, mining, coal exploration, things like that. And so that's the banks, that's consumers, that's firms, and then you've got governments as well. So you've got San Francisco that you know has 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 banned um, uh, uh, natural gas in any new construction, so any new apartment, new houses. They only have electric, not gas. Uh, they phased out the sale of new electric cars in 2040, uh, and then New York followed suit just, I think, two weeks ago. So you will not be able to buy a new car with an internal combustion engine uh, in the state of California or New York in 2040, only electric. The, the examples go on and on and on. Last thing, you really know it's getting serious when the accountants get involved. So if all those headlines kind of weren't enough, I think you really know the ESG has arrived when the big four accounting firms endorse official ESG reporting standards, which, which um, has just happened. Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers. That's a big deal. That's when you know it's getting, it's getting uh, really, really serious. A question from the audience. What are the three policies that are quantitatively reversing global warming? What are three policies that quantitatively reduce global warming? Well, I think that when you look at the greening or electrification of the grid, um, that's really that's really huge, right? And so a lot of governments around the world, um, not just the U.S., are um, are moving um, uh, to that in, in that direction. Um, the, con- the construction industry is huge. A construction industry, um, uh, especially um, uh, uh, concrete, um, produces uh, huge huge amounts of CO2. Um, and um, and anything, of course, that targets uh, methane as well. I was actually talking to, to a construction industry roundtable group um, a few months ago. Um, so the steps that they are, are, are taking um, to curb their greenhouse gas emissions are huge. And then methane, which is 80 times worse as a, as a heat trapping um, uh, gas, anything that, that can curb uh, methane uh, leaking into the atmosphere um, is, is huge. I, I was just talking with a, um, a firm with, a, with a, 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 a brand new technology that can detect uh, methane uh, leaks in um, uh, oil and gas refining, uh, refining facilities in real time. So typically you might have a, you know, literally a person with a clipboard uh, walking around once every six months saying, oh, you, need, you know, you need to tighten this valve kind of a thing versus a, t- a technological solution that can, um, uh, that can detect in real time. Um, so anyway, I hope that answers the question, but, uh, but yeah, th- those are some things that come to mind. And another uh, question from the audience, an effort to support your local community and grow manufacturing jobs. Is it wise to point out many foreign countries are less than friendly to the environment? Absolutely. So, 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 you know, the great outsourcing experiment of, you know, the, the last 60 years for post-World War II, where, you know, we as consumers in the United States can benefit from inexpensive products. But if you stop and think just for a second about, well, why is, why is this product inexpensive? And a lot of times it's because it was made with child labor or because the firm that made it is located overseas and their environmental standards are not as strict. So they can make a product 
more cheaply and get it to us um, than we could make it here because of some of these regulatory things we've been talking about. And I think more and more and more, you see consumers making the choice to buy products that have more responsible packaging. And then if you look at just the kite marks on the kite marks are those little icons on consumer packaged goods that say things like, you know, uh, fair trade, if you're thinking about coffee, for example, right? So fair trade coffee or chocolate, meaning that the, the people that have made it have been paid a living wage. Um, you'll see things that are um, uh, not only, you know, kosher, vegan or non-GMO, right? Um, but, you know, sustainable seas or sustainably farmed, right? Uh, dolphin safe, I remember was a, a big thing, uh, even a few decades ago and still to this day. So consumers have, that's, this is really the beautiful thing. This is the thing that I, it gives me hope so much is that we've all had the power this whole time to make these changes. We can all vote with our dollars, right? And if as a class, consumers end up putting their dollars where their mouth is, right? Voting with their dollars by buying products that align with their values and specifically shunning products that don't align with their values. Of course, that will make corporate America change, right? So I think that is really the, um, the optimistic part of all this is that, we, hey, we've had the, the power the whole time and we're just kind of waking up to it more so nowadays, uh, maybe than in, in decades past. The pocketbook drives everything. Absolutely. Um, another question from the audience. What are the best ESG funds to invest in, in your opinion? So, or, or they should be aware of. Sure. So um, I am uh, not a stock picker and uh, it's not appropriate for me to give advice, but I will say that there are um, green bonds and sustainable bonds. There's a really interesting group called the Working Forest Fund, uh, which people can look at. And that was a really unique security. It was brought to the, uh, the investment grade bond market. Um, it's called the Working Forest Fund. And their goal is to address climate change, conservation, and economic resilience through core, uh, uh, forest conservation in the United States. Um, so they went out with uh, Goldman Sachs, raised $150 million in 2019. Uh, and the, the, the green bond proceeds that invested were about 131 million out of that 100, 150 million. Um, there are a whole bunch of SDG ETFs. SDG stands for Sustainable Development Goals. So the United Nations uh, uh, came out with 17 goals and they're all color coded and numbered. And so they're like goal number one is no poverty. Goal number two is zero hunger. Um, goal number 13 is climate action. Um, goal number six is, is clean water and sanitation. So there, I mean, there's 17 numbered and color coded goals. And you can say, okay, here's what's important to me. And I would like to invest accordingly. And almost, almost any wealth management firm or brokerage firm will be able to very, very easily now, it wasn't the case a few years ago, but very, very easily now, um, drive your investments uh, uh, towards um, aligning with your values. So there's uh, SDG ETFs, so like Impact Share Sustainable uh, Development Goals um, uh, ETF, it's SDGA. There's Serenity Shares, there's an SSI Impact Index. 
Um, iShares has a, a MSCI Global Impact ETF. So there's those sorts of securities. Um, there are other mutual funds, uh, so federated um, SDG uh, uh, engagement. Uh, it's FHESX. There's um, Cornerstone Capital Group that has a whole bunch of, of SDG funds. Um, and then there's you know there's even public companies that are B Corps, right? So there's um, uh, Silver Chef, uh, Ben and Jerry's Sundial. Um, which is Unilever Company, uh, New Chapter, which is PNG uh, Laureate uh, Education. So they're actually public companies that are, are B Corps. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, iShares, right? So there's ETFs that you can buy that really understand that this idea that, 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 that climate risk represents investment risk, right? Just like you were talking about before, Mark, with these insurance companies. Yep. And th that it's moved from like a, from a novelty in the investment world to something that's a really approaching mainstream, right? And, and, and you've got an estimated, I think, 50 to 100 trillion in capital invested uh, um, that's required to, that will be, will be required to rebuild a net zero global economy, right, by, 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 by 2050, so the next 29 years. And we think that, you know, financial markets are, are, are beginning to appreciate the potential impact of this shift towards sustainability. So, so I'll, I'll stop there. But, but yes, there are, there are lots. And I'm happy to uh, answer questions offline and put some stuff in the show notes um, uh, for people to, to help them with the research. Yeah. And we'll give you the email addresses of everybody who participated and signed up for this program so you can reach them directly. Uh, explain how the four P's product, price, place, and promotion have added a fifth P purpose how does that impact sellers and buyers? Sure thing. So um, purpose is really everything. Um, when you think about who wins in the elevated economy, it's those folks that are running purpose-led businesses. And let me pause and give an example. If you think about um, Tom's shoes, right? Um, they're a shoe company that when you buy a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes to somebody in need. Um, so the four P's are um, product, price, place, and promotion. And this fifth P, purpose, is really everything. I mean, of course, you have to have the first, the first four. But when you talk about how purpose impacts buyers and sellers, Think about your willingness to pay um, for a, 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 a product that aligns with your values. The, the idea about what you're willing to pay for from an identity and a purpose standpoint is huge. And, you, and, and as a firm, as a company, you can really drive willingness to pay by imbuing your product with purpose and brewing, imbuing your, your, your company with purpose. It has to be genuine, of course, but yeah, we all learned about willingness to pay in business school, right? So, so, so it's, it's, it's abbreviated as WTP, willingness to pay, and it's the maximum price that somebody's willing to pay for, for a product or, or for a service. And it can vary significantly from one person to the next, right? Makes sense. But the, 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 the variance is often caused by differences in either extrinsic or intrinsic values. So extrinsic differences are observable, right? Things you can generally determine about a person without needing to ask them. So age, gender, income, education, things like that, where they live. Intrinsic differences, on the other hand, are person's characteristics that, that you wouldn't know without asking them directly, right? So they're, they're kind of hard to observe. 
So these unobserved differences are, uh, I think, an opportunity for companies with purpose to drive willingness to pay. And I'm not saying that that some of these factors should be used solely to drive willingness to pay, but as a result of a company behaving well, having a purpose, having a mission, you can get companies that, that um, uh, 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 like Sachi and Sachi would, would really rely on a thing called love marks. And that was when somebody was so fanatical about a brand that they would evangelize about that brand. So when you think about ESG or sustainability being linked to purpose, uh, like in the Tom's shoes example, I buy a pair of shoes and some kid gets, uh, uh, who's in need gets a pair of shoes as well. I feel really good about that. I actually feel fantastic about that. Not only do I feel fantastic about that, but I am branding myself as somebody who believes that that, that that is important by wearing those shoes with the little logo right on the shoes. So purpose-led businesses can really increase a consumer's willingness to pay by promoting their products to match extrinsic and intrinsic differences, those two differences we talked about. And the huge changes that we've seen take place in regards to climate change and social justice, et cetera, are really, they're huge opportunities. Again, another reason to be optimistic, the huge opportunities for firms to increase willingness to pay. So just consider again for a second, those kite marks and the messaging you see on just about every consumer product, sustainably sourced, recycled, earth-friendly, non-GMO, organic, fair trade, right? The list goes on and on. So, so, so I hope that answers the question. Again, another long answer to a short question, but um, I do think critically about a lot of this stuff. And, uh, and, and I think that, that, that those are some, some hopefully helpful examples. No, they were, they were excellent examples. Companies have been focused on short-term for a few decades. Are we seeing a shift to long-term thinking? And what if the companies can't make their numbers? I mean, that, I think that's what worries me uh, most because you mentioned the beginning of this, companies taking a longer-term view. And, and you mentioned very prominent CEOs and, and, and household name companies. Uh, but what if they don't make their numbers and it's cheaper just to go and break the laws of you know, what you're hoping to do for the future, for the environment and, and, and the world in general, what happens then? Sure. So we talked about the business roundtable um, and we talked about short-termism versus the long-term value, right? Generating long-term value for shareholders, which was the fifth bullet point in the, in the five bullet points of, of, of uh, the new purpose of a corporation, according to those 140 CEOs of, of, of America's largest company. So we talked about that uh, uh, a couple of minutes ago. This is really all about the narrative that investors are being given. So consider real world example. Walmart and Amazon. They basically do the same thing. They're the everything store to everybody, right? You can get anything at Walmart, you can get anything and everything at Amazon. Yep. The story that Bezos told investors for 20 years is, hey, we're not going to generate a, turn, a return for you for 20 years. We're not going to generate a return for you for 20 years, but we will build the everything store, right? And the equity in those shares is going to, is going to increase massively over time. Walmart's narrative, on the other hand, was different. We will generate return for shareholders every quarter, right? So it's conditioning the investor class with the right narrative and you can have success either on the one side or on the other side. And I think that the game is changing, not just the narrative. So you've got investors and consumers demanding that change and companies are going to have to answer it in an ethically and um, 
genuine manner and they are going to have to stick to their guns. You know, um, climate week, which is every September, right? This month, uh, uh, usually results in a lot of companies that come out with these pledges, right? Last year, uh, Walmart pledged to become a regenerative company. We talked about that a little bit ago. Um, and you had, oh, I mean, a whole range of companies uh, 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 declaring that they'd be carbon neutral by, by a certain date. You had China at Climate Week in New York City saying that they will be um, uh, 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 zero emission by 2060, the country of China, right? I mean, massive, massive, massive news. Now, and we talked about the ubiquity of information before, it's up to the free press and all of us to keep these folks honest with their pledges. There's some great work um, by Barron's on this. There's some fantastic work by Bloomberg. They actually have a little chart that shows where firms are on the progress uh, towards the goals that they themselves have set. So I think that once those flags have been planted in the ground, you're going to see um, consumers, investors, and the press holding their feet to the fire over time. Uh, what new training and skills do CEOs need now? Because it seems to me that they're going to need more than what they used to need. And every year, it seems like there are more and more um, skill sets that they're going to need to run these companies and achieve these goals that you talked about. Yeah, sure. So identifying and uncovering the inevitable. In my book, Elevated Economics, the first few chapters lay out the set of facts, just facts, just numbers. Here's where everything is going. Here is where these plots are on a graph. And so you can, you can map uh, the, the trajectory of where a lot of these issues are going. So you can understand where the future state is. And you can understand, we used the, the Wayne Gretzky meta metaphor before, right? Skate, skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is. You can understand where the puck is going. Now, now that you know that, whether you're a, you know, a, 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 an employee at the company, uh, a, 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 an executive, CEO, whatever, you can leverage that. You can help your firm leverage ESG and purpose to your advantage. You know what the future state is. You know what the inevitable is. So now just get there. And how do you get there? How do you do that in a genuine way? So I think that as far as training and the skills that CEOs need, of course, they always need to be lifelong learners. That's, that's, that's absolutely critical understanding the changes in consumer and investor behavior, what the next generation is going to demand of you. You can really set your firm up for success and you can actually be a leader in this area. You think about the great wealth migration, $68 trillion, that's trillion with a T, $68 trillion of wealth are going to be uh, transferred from the baby boomer and older generations to millennials and younger generations. Those younger generations invest and spend completely different, uh, completely differently than those older generations. 80% of them are gonna uh, look for a new uh, wealth manager, right? 80% of them, right? These are the folks that are going to be driving all that change. And they're not gonna be investing in companies or mutual funds uh, that uh, are comprised of firms behaving badly. And so understanding that, that should give you the motivation to change. Learning about ESG and some of these other 
things that we've been talking about today should in, in, inspire you in your firm to sort of get to that future state as quickly as possible, tell a genuine story about it without greenwashing. Um, and greenwashing being, you know, you say you're doing things, but you're not actually actually doing them. So genuinely sort of getting to that to that future state and evangelizing, right? T telling the world how good you are, right? And that goes back to that Tom's example, Tom's shoes that we that we that we talked about before. Let people feel good about doing business with you. Let them let them become an evangelist for your brand because of who your company is, not what it sells. We have a, read a, a significant migration from cities to suburbs over the last year, but you write about the trend toward mega cities. How will future pandemics affect this? Sure. So yeah, we talked about climate change and, and something being right in front of your face uh, and taking action on it. Um, and I think that it's very, very similar to, to what's happening with the pandemic right now. Obviously very, very serious. But if you look back to, you know, the, the flu pandemic of 1908, it, 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 it didn't result, or sorry, 1918, didn't result in mass migration to rural areas uh, and neither will COVID. So I think short term, yes. Uh, long term, no. You know, I, I would say in, in, you know, March and April, of 2020, there was all this is going, you know, will we ever shake hands again? Will we ever be in the same room? You know, travel's dead, conferences are dead, you know, everything was right, never again. And the sky was falling and it was, you know, it felt that way for sure. But uh, I think is, you know, at least in my experience, right, as soon as I was three weeks past my second shot and I knew that the person across from me was as well, we were hugging and handshaking and, and doing all the things that, uh, you know, that that uh, that we've done in the past. So I, I think that those are um, short-term headlines and I don't think that long-term, um, uh, uh, that it'll impact the, the trend towards uh, moving to megacities. Uh, what role will cryptocurrency play in the future? And, and should we be buying, spending, and accepting it? Because I'm still not sure I understand. And I've had a few uh, authors on this show that talked about cryptocurrency. And I'm still not sure I understand what, what its value is, considering it's based on the dollar or, or some other denomination. It's not like based on you know cattle or, or, or something um, strange. It's already still based on sure. that. So what's so, your take on this? <laughs> well, yeah. So I've been asked for for stock picks, and now and now crypto. <laughs> so yeah. let me back off yet again. Uh, I, I I'm not I'm not qualified to to recommend uh, any particular um, cryptocurrencies or anything like that. I wasn't However, thinking about the recommending say, of the cryptocurrency, but like, what's the role cryptocurrency is going to be playing in buying, spending, and accepting? Because now there's there was yeah. even a country that saying we'll accept cryptocurrency and you have, you know, some big organizations are saying you'll be able to use it to buy products. So yeah. Yeah. Are yeah. they stunts or is this for real for the future? Yeah. So a, a couple of things, I would say that, that, that we, we would make the distinction between the blockchain and currencies that are built on the blockchain. And so I think, you know, the, the blockchain is, very important and very good in so many ways. And, 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 and one of those ways is the disintermediation of uh, middlemen, right? And, and democratizing finance. Those are good things. Banking the unbanked is, is a good thing. Um, smart contracts are a good thing. Uh, decentralized cloud storage, that makes a ton of sense, right? Um, and I think that, that you know, stable coins represent um, uh, a real opportunity in crypto, right? So they aim to, the, the aim of stable coins is to become sort of global fiat-free digital cash, right? 
And, and, and if you look at the opportunity there, you know, the, the, the total addressable market or, or TAM, as we talk about, um, is it's all the money in the world, right? I mean, that's a total addressable market, right? It's $90 trillion. So the opportunity, I think, for stable coins is it, intrinsically, it's the largest possible uh, TAM. Over about the last year or so, they've grown from 17 billion to 116 billion. Um, they found clear product market fit. Um, they act, uh, you know, as a base in uh, uh, crypto trading. They're they're being used for cross border payments, remittances, right? I mean, so think about think about folks who send. Maybe they're in the United States and they send money back to a to a foreign country. Let's take Mexico as an example. In the old days, you'd go to Western Union. Western Union would charge some exorbitant percent to be able to act as that middleman so those funds could be transferred. Now you can do it completely disintermediating, disintermediating that middleman. Um, and, and, and that's better, of course, because the, the, the money goes directly to the person it's intended to and they can spend it in, 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 in their economy. So I think those things are good things. I, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's been a lot of discourse around scaling blockchains and, 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 and the limiting factors of the transaction um, per second or, 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 or TPS. And so, you know, we've been talking about Ethereum, which supports about, you know, 15 to, to 30 transactions per second. Finance um, is about 160. Uh, Solana, which has got a lot of attention recently, supports up to 50,000 transactions per second. So I, you see investors have, have invested, you know, billions of dollars to scale um, uh, uh, some of these uh, things on the blockchain. And they are necessary technologies for the future. So, so yes, I mean, I believe crypto is here to stay. We could do a whole nother hour on this. Um, so I do think it's here to stay. I do think it provides a, 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 a valuable service um, and it gets, the blockchain in general gets more of, gets more productive capacity to more people through the act of disintermediation. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I hope that wasn't Greek uh, to, to people. No, no, I thought that, I thought that was helpful. There are very, there's a very interesting question about consumers you asked. What was, uh, and it was, uh, which was, what identity are our, our customers protecting? What do you mean by this? And why would they be protecting their identity? Yeah, sure. Um, so there, there are five principles related to identity as, as it relates to consumer behavior and how businesses can kind of leverage it to, to plan sales, marketing, and product development, and things like that, right? All those various strategies. Um, and there was, a, there was a paper published by the economics and marketing professors from University of Pennsylvania, where you, got, where you are, um, and the University of Washington. And they studied this phenomenon. And, and, and they basically came down to um, identify five principles. And they are the identity salience principle, the identity relevance principle, uh, the identity verification principle and the identity conflict principle. So basically it, it, it takes a, a consumer from um, establishing what their identity is as a person, as a consumer in society, and then um, uh, all the way to what happens when there is some friction there and there is a, 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 a conflict. So let me explain a little bit. When, when you're at, your question was, what identity are customers protecting? So that, that fifth principle in that joint study that I mentioned talked about um, uh, identity conflict. And so by, by the time a consumer reaches the end of the entity identity adoption process, meaning they, they fully understand sort of who they are, 
they've reached sort of this, what I call semi-walled state, right? Their, their goal for their identity, once they've associated with it and verified it, is to protect it, right? So to give you an example, they're not buying a Patagonia jacket just to see if it lives up to the hype. And if it's a, if it's a, a you know, good warm jacket, they're buying it because of how well it supports their identity as an environmentally conscious, financially successful person. Um, and they're trying to, 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 to blend those identities, right? So once, once you've decided to become an identity-driven company, the next step is to identify with as much clarity as possible which identities your key consumers are already protecting, right? So how do you sort of get over that wall and that, and that walled state, or at least be let through the door because the identity of your firm uh, uh, um, uh, matches the identity of the consumer. So there's a lot more to it. I'll kind of leave it there. Happy to go into a little bit more depth if you'd like. Uh, no, it's good. Uh, there's been a ton of research featuring the Harvard Business Review, which is by far my favorite magazines and people hear that all the time, uh, about the value of diverse leadership and the return on investment. Has the same held true for companies that focus on the triple bottom line, social, environmental, and financial and do you have some good examples? Yeah, sure. So um, when, when, when companies are focused on um, ESG or as you talk about triple bottom line, part of that is going to be on the social side and diversity falls into that, into that bucket. So when we're, when we're talking about ESG, different things fall in different buckets. The diversity stuff falls in the, in the, in the S of, of, of ES and G and also sometimes in, in, in G and governance as far as the makeup of the board and things like that. So um, there was a um, there was a story that was printed in the Telegraph, um, and it really zeroed in on, on the definitions and importance of diversity and inclusion. Um, and and uh, they were basically saying that look very simply, diversity can be seen as a as a means of differentiating people from one another, right? Gender, ethnicity, etc. But there, 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 there's a firm called the, uh, the Global Diversity Practice. Um, and there's a woman there named Farah. And, and she was saying that, look, it's, it's about respecting and appreciating differences. And, and, and the key question for companies is, is, is how to leverage those differences, right? Those, those different lifestyles, perspectives, and backgrounds to drive business success, right? To drive business innovation. So it's not tokenism, right? You, you want to stay away from that. Um, it's understanding that I'll use myself as, as an example, right? If I'm, if I'm in a boardroom and it's, it's, you know, comprised of, you know, 10 other mid forties white guys, that doesn't serve me well. And I need to know that that doesn't serve me well. And here, here's how that doesn't serve me in a business context. We might not be identifying, we're likely not identifying where our product or service might fit in a community that we're not familiar with, right? If it's, 10, 40 something year old white guys, we need the perspective of women. We need the perspective of people of color. We need the perspective of people who are historically marginalized, right? And, and, and not brought to the table and think about the opportunity there, right? I mean, just the, the women versus men alone, that's 50%. If we're not thinking about 50% of our consumers, it's insane, right? So we're talking about driving business success and innovation through diversity. That's just one example. Um, I hope that helps. A uh, question from the audience. I am hopeful new technologies utilizing and harnessing the energy and power of the sun will relegate fossil fuels to a negligible effect. 
We're currently making huge advances in nuclear fusion. How far in the future do you think this is uh, a way in the making a real impact? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, my cousin actually started the Youth Nuclear Conference about 20 years ago. She is uh, also an HBS alum and just a, a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And their goal is to promote the, the, the adoption of um, uh, nuclear energy, um, because as we know, it, is, it, it can be done very well and very safely. I think that you know, stigma is the biggest issue, right? Uh, and the biggest hurdle for the, uh, the nuclear industry. Um, but I think that as we get to cost parity between fossil fuels and uh, renewables, right then, you know, the economics drive all the decision-making, right? As soon as solar is cheaper than coal, coal is done, right? I mean, so, so we sort of get that. Um, nuclear, in my opinion, would have to be orders of magnitude cheaper uh, than the uh, other renewable sources before it gains a real foothold. I could be wrong about that. I think that that's where it's going, but all the attention now is really solar, solar wind, some geothermal, um, but that's, uh, that, that's where I think we are at this point in the economy. And I think that will continue to, um, uh, 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 that trend will continue uh, to evolve. So here's our final question. Where do you see the best business opportunities over the next five years? And uh, that will allow both companies to deliver financially, serve the world and community well, and create economic inclusion. Sure, Mark. It's a that's a great question, and so it's it's funny. Uh, on my LinkedIn profile, I think it says something like entrepreneur, investor, and optimist. So the word mm -hmm. optimist is sort of right there, front and center. I see opportunity everywhere: the digital transformation, the greening of the economy, infrastructure, manufacturing, clean tech, energy, transportation, education, consulting, logistics, retail, tech, healthcare, entertainment. This is the most exciting time to be alive, the most exciting time to be in business. You've heard it a thousand times, right? You, you innovate or die. Consumers and investors, they've elevated their game. So I use the, uh, uh, the term elevated economics in the title of the book. In my work with Harvard Business School, in my work with the White House, in my work with public companies and nonprofit, you see optimism everywhere in regards to opportunities. Your question was about business opportunities. Look, yes. I don't have a time machine, right? But when it comes to economics, I think a, a little bit of research and the wisdom of some very, very intelligent people can be just as good for, for dodging you know, calamity in the future. I think it's important to drive home the optimistic side of this elevated economy. Profit margins and revenue predictions aside, we're approaching a truly thrilling age for business and, 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 for, and for those people who lead those businesses. We don't have to lead our companies at society's expense anymore, right? Whether it's providing safer and healthier working conditions or making decisions that are in the best interest of the environment, the choice between doing well or doing good, it doesn't have to be made anymore. That is a false choice. And the elevated economy is here. I think people, after people read the book and maybe after even this dialogue, you know how your next customers and your next investors thinking has changed. You know how they evaluate your company before making a purchase decision, how they vote with their dollars. We talked about that. You know how to begin an authentic plan for change, or maybe you will at least after reading the book, 
and, and to compete for consumers by telling them who you are, not what you make, not what you sell, right? So uh, this is the world that, 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 that I dreamed about as a kid before I moved to New York City to, to start my first company. And I saw New York as, as this land of, of possibility. I write about it in the book, a, a place where dreams happen while you're wide awake, right? And I wanted to be part of that. And I feel the same way now as I did then, right? I feel the same way about the next few decades of economic progress. I think what happens next doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be just great financially, right? It can also be good. You know, everybody, everybody was always saying, you know, this is going to change everything, whether it's, you know, uh, you know clean tech or, or, or blockchain or whatever. And, and I, I believe that I think that consumers are the kings of capitalism as we go you know, so, do, so, do, so does Wall Street. And, you know, think about where you bank, think about how you spend your dollars. You know, for me, the business landscape right now is as exciting as it can be. Nothing can be more inspiring. And uh, I hope you agree. Richard, you know, the, uh, this ties along with this final question. And, and what worries me, and, and we've kind of run out of time, is that people without uh, degrees, and even people with degrees, certain types of degrees, we're seeing a shrinking middle class and shrinking opportunities and companies going toward robotics, any way to replace the person, the fat and the margins and everything else. Is, is that a real concern or do you see that changing too, that there will be many opportunities for people who don't have great science and math skills? So that American dream of you know, a house, two cars, a vacation and retirement will continue to exist. People worried about the automobile in the age of horse and buggies. People worried about um, you know computers uh, in the late '70s and, and early '80s. And we have found that time and time again, there are so many more opportunities, jobs created as we evolve into the next phase of our economy. And I do truly believe that it is a very exciting time to be alive. That doesn't worry me. There are uh, lots and lots of opportunities for people all across the spectrum. And I think as we enter into this new phase, this elevated economy, I think that there, that will continue and there'll be more opportunity for more people as we move forward. Richard Steele, thank you so much. I can't uh, wait until you write your next book and have you back again. I uh, wish you the best of luck with this book. And thanks for everybody for listening today. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Please stay safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.